sometimes in your columns, what you write for The Guardian, you're a bit of a misery, guts. If you don't mind me saying so, George. Um, and that's all right. Only sometimes. How dare you, sir? <laughs> <That's right. laughs> what do you take me for? I'm kind of optimist. To Sustainable 97. 97? Oh! Yes? Where the bloody hell have we been? We've been on holidays. We've been on an excursion. We yes. have been to that lovely Oxford, the city of dreaming spires. And we went to Oxford because we went to talk to somebody very, very special. Who was it, Dave? We went to talk to only that George Mombio. <gasps> Hello, off of The Guardian and off of books and off of talking and off of brains. Uh, he's been writing about the environment for years and years and years and years and years. Uh, he has a regular Guardian column. He is one of Britain's best known environmental campaigners. And he only gave us a bit of his time. Well, two bits of his time, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, two bits of his time. Turns out there was a small logistical error and, uh, and George had to nip off in the middle of this interview to collect his daughter. But uh, it was very genuinely very, very good of him to come back and continue chatting to us and we really, really appreciated it. So this is great. We talked to George all about neoliberalism and what's wrong with it Um, and and what to do about it and the fact that we're all friends, really. And we talked about naked mole rats and we talked about rewilding and how to uh, do some mysterious thing to a mysterious place. But we don't know much more about it yet. Mm, Very mysterious. All right. Well, this is our interview with George. But before we do that, just the usual disclaimer. Mm. This is new territory for me. Uh, We do work for environmental charities, but these are very much our views and not theirs. Uh, So if you've got any issue with what we say, take it up with us uh, or take it up with George. He's got a pretty thick skin, but I don't think you'll find much to disagree with in here because this is a fantastic chat through a whole range of issues and we very much hope you enjoy it. So, George, hello. Hello. <laughs> Thank you very much for giving us a bit of your time to talk to us today. Um, for our listeners' benefit, please could you just um, give a little bit of an instruction who you are, how you came to be doing what you're doing? Um, I'm George Monbiot. I'm an environmental campaigner, journalist, writer. Um, I've always been just mad about the living world and, um, and I'm deeply concerned about its destruction. I took my first environmental direct action when I was eight. Yeah. Um, and um, I've carried on since. Excellent. Um, so I, uh, this is a really um, important interview for me because I, when I was at university in Oxford, in fact, um, I read your book, Poison Arrows, um, and 
me and my mate Ian said, oh, this is great. This is what we want to do. Let's go and find George Monbiot and ask him how we do what we want to do. And then we got distracted by the pub or something. Um, but now, you know, 13 years later, I found you. Uh, so, uh, But I'm struck by how dramatically things have changed since you wrote that book. And I wonder how you feel when you look back on that time, both about the person you were, and but also the state of the world that you were writing about. Yes, I, I mean, I have somehow retained some optimism um, probably because of my recognition that human beings are fundamentally good people. You know, we're, we're, we're a good species. We, if we're allowed to be, our um, dominant characteristics are altruism, empathy, benevolence, community feeling. This is demonstrated by loads of experiments. Um, we all have a bit of selfishness and greed in us, but it's way down the list. But somehow we keep trashing the living planet and trashing each other's lives um, and I feel it's a system which drives us to behave in that way a system which can be changed so that's what keeps me going but then there are other times when I feel profoundly pessimistic I, I went to West Papua believing that by reporting what was going on we could change it mm. we could um, th make the case that what was happening there the mass destruction of people and place was immoral um, it had to change and therefore it would change which um, now strikes me as quite a naive view <laughs> at the time you had the great weight of geopolitics behind the Suharto dictatorship in Indonesia which had occupied West Papua and was doing horrendous things to both the indigenous people there and to the astonishing beautiful places where they lived and um they um and the Suharto dictatorship was backed by the u.s by the uk by the whole west by the world bank by the imf um and such things as ethics and environmental concern just didn't stand a chance um in fact even getting any traction in the media for these issues was almost impossible and of course I hadn't realised to what extent the media was a player mm. and to what extent it was part of the system of power and destruction. So we were having a look at your new book which is called Out of the Wreckage, yes? Which is, um, you can tell people what it's about, but something I was really struck by in that book was talking about what's gone wrong is this sense of belonging somewhere, uh, which is something that I, I think I feel, and, and this sort of sense of a displacement. And do you want to explain a bit about how that maybe talks to environmental issues and, and what we can do about it? The condition of our age is alienation. Alienation from our surroundings, from the living world, from each other, from ourselves. Ultimately, all the different forms of alienation that afflict us coalesce into psychic rupture um, and help to explain the shocking levels of mental health disorders um, that so many people now suffer. Um, and um, this is a condition which has been greatly exacerbated by the dominant ideology of our times, which is neoliberalism, which tells us that we should be apart, which creates a whole romantic lexicon of um, 
of, of atomization. Individuals, right? Individuals, yes. We talk. We don't call people people anymore. We say individuals. You can hardly read um, a, a newspaper article without seeing that word. Um, and it's quite a recent. It's coming quite recently as, as a description of people. But uh, we're lone rangers and sole traders and self-made men and women and self-starters and all. We you, you can't complete a sentence without saying personal. Personally speaking, to distinguish myself from a ventriloquist dummy, <laughs> I prefer personal friends to the impersonal variety <laughs> and uh, personal belongings to the kind which uh, don't actually belong to me. But that's just my personal opinion otherwise known as my opinion. Um, and, um, and so we, we, we've all internalised and reproduced this dominant ideology, an ideology which says we could, should conceive of human relations as a market, that basically our engagement with other people should be transactional, and that the more selfish and greedy we are, the better it'll be for everyone, because that enables some people to rise to the top, become tremendously wealthy, and their wealth will trickle down to enrich everyone. Mm. And hasn't that worked out so well? Trickled on a, from a great height. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, And... Um, and interestingly, you know, the, the sort of founding text of all this, you know, the, the, the central text of it, um, at, at least, is The Constitution of Liberty by um, Friedrich Hayek. Mm-hmm. It's really worth reading. It's completely insane. I mean, it's, it's, it's a totally mad, deranged um, philosophy. Um, you know, it's as mad as Ayn Rand, but, it, but he, he takes it seriously. And, and in there, he says, you know, we ought to deplete resources. Um, he talks about soil. He says that soil mining is, is something we should pursue because we should extract as much income as possible right now and then invest it in other places because that will enhance economic growth, well, enhance the wealth of what he calls the independents, the super wealthy people, and they are the pioneers who then lead the way for everybody to follow and that's got to be a good thing for everyone. It doesn't quite specify how and why it's such a good thing for everyone, but yeah, it's got to be a good thing. So, you know, we, we see things like soil mining and resource depletion as being bugs in the system. They're, they're not, they're features. Um, it's, it, it's integral to this. You've got to think for yourselves. You're all individuals. Yes, we're all individuals. You're all different. Yes, we are all different. I'm not. Shh. Now... This system of alienation, which causes so many catastrophic impacts for us, has led to almost complete social atomization for many people. You know, here we are in a world of 7 billion people and many have no friend to talk to, no one to confide in. It's an amazing thing. Mm. Such a crowded planet and such atomized people. And, and, Everybody has a fundamental need for belonging. Belonging is essential. And if we don't answer that need with inclusive and generous communities, it will be answered by other means. And Hannah Arendt pointed out that out of an atomized society, fascism emerges. And, and what fascism is, is a craving for community. It's a craving for people to, uh, to be part of something where people act as one. And it's very easy to, to attract people to that community because you tell them, you're going to be great, you're going to be dominant, you're going to be on top of society. And by coming together and um, being uh, marching as one with one banner and one uniform and one anthem, um, we, we are going to be the dominant people. And you get this great sense of belonging to something. Mm. 
And that is a sense we all crave. So basically, if we, you know, the, the, the antithesis of an inclusive and generous belonging is not no belonging. We can't cope with no belonging. We can't survive with no belonging. It's a highly toxic form of belonging. Trump belonging, right? Well, yeah, yeah. No, well, that's, that's certainly one expression of it. And so, so it, it's an imperative that we create a sense of belonging. And I, and I don't think that sense of belonging can be properly met only through being part of an online community or a sort of global community of interest. or It has to have a geographical element. And that that has to be an inclusive geographical element. It doesn't matter where you come from, what your skin colour is, what your beliefs are, what your inclinations are. It doesn't matter, but you should feel that in this particular place you call home, even if it's only for a year that you're living there, you belong there. You're part of the community. That, that, that community is something in which you happily engage and it happily engages with you. And to make that happen, we need to do several things. One is to create a sort of participatory culture where community um, activities are the norm, where it's, it's just entirely ordinary to do things together, such as eating together. And, and and you know, getting getting people together, like for the big lunch, you know, which uh, we hold in June in the UK, um, where you sort of shut off your street and put out the tables, hang up the flags, and get people eating. This is absolutely fundamental to bringing people back together and creating that sense of geographical community. So your uh, your book is obviously an expression of of the need to do that in in many ways, but what. Um, I'm not clear on is whether you feel that if those things are achieved, some of the huge planetary crises we face will necessarily be fixed. So, so, so does this community-centered or society fix climate change? Does it stop the depletion of natural resources? Does it bring back the insects, or, or do we need something else as well? It's a necessary but insufficient condition. And the the crucial part of the community aspect of this, and I'm not saying the community aspect of it solves everything. We have to apply um, change at the top as well as at the bottom. But the the crucial part is the recovery of the commons. And you know we all talk about economics or politics as if the table of economics of the economy has only two legs. We we talk about state and market. Um, and if you're on the left, you say you want more state and less market. And if you're on the right, you say you want more market and less state. But there are actually four legs to this table. There are four pillars of the economy. Um, there is the state, there is the market, there's a household, and there's the commons. And the commons is perennially neglected by almost everyone in economics, in politics, in public life. And the commons could be defined as a resource which is controlled and managed by a particular community, um, which then um, shares the product of that resource on an equal basis. The resource um, is inalienable, it can't be sold, it can't be given away, and it should be managed in perpetuity. Um, and it also commons consists of the rules and negotiations required to sustain that resource. So a commons, the commons is not capitalism, is not communism. It's something entirely different. And it's not about trying to extract as much as you can today and hang the future. It's about trying to um, sustain that resource forever. So it is inherently 
an environmental uh, option. Um, and the destruction of the commons, like, for instance, the destruction of the great land commons through the enclosure movements, which have mm -hmm. taken place for centuries now, where people being chucked off the land, land grabbed by one person or a few people, um, those were accompanied by massive environmental destruction all over the world, that when you kick the community off, you kick all the habitats off as well and turn it over to monoculture, because the community needs a polyculture. If people are surviving off... The, um, the the commons and it's meeting many of our, their needs and they're trying to manage it in perpetuity, they, they will have a polycultural approach to it and um, they will be conserving its resources. But if you're just trying to manage it for profit, if you switch from a common system to a capitalist system, a market-based system, or for that matter to a state-based system, you, you are going to be mining those resources. And so, so as an example of where that's happened in the UK, the, the Highland clearances and the, and the Highlands... It's interesting that? we all talk about the Highland clearances. We've all heard of the Highland clearances. No one talks about the Lowland clearances, where far more people were actually kicked off. Really? And hardly anyone even talks about in, the enclosures in England, where it all kicked off. Mm. England was, was where the model was invented. I think the thing that, that people get fussed about is that a fox is, is, is a small brown fairy animal, very much like a dog. Um, I don't think they'd be nearly so worried if it was a, a little four-legged car full of chips. I've worked with indigenous people on three continents and I've seen what happens to them when they lose their land. Total collapse, collapse of their community because they're scattered to the four winds, collapse of the environment, but also psychic collapse, that they fall apart succumb to alienation, to anomie, to alcoholism, to drug addiction, to a whole series of mental health disasters. Then I came back to Britain and I read John Clare's poems, uh, including his enclosure poems, this peasant poet, this totally brilliant man, where you know his early poems describe the wonder and beauty of, of the wildlife, the, the habitats, the community, the people that he was brought up with. And then in mid-adulthood, he encloses, turn up, sweep it all away. What happens? He becomes an alcoholic. He ends up dying in a lunatic asylum. Up from behind the molehill jumps the hare, cheat of his chosen bed, and from the bank the yellowhammer flutters in short fears. That's happened to all of us. That is our history, worldwide. That's who we are. We, we are those indigenous people who have been displaced from the land. doesn't matter where in the world we live. That's who we are, and we're still living with the legacy of that in this post-enclosure society and um, because we don't understand that we have failed to to uh, understand what the potential for both human and environmental restoration might be where of all the flowers gone in your book, you say that humans are almost unique among mammals in having this tendency for cooperation stuff. You said you weren't going to ask this question. I want to ask it. <laughs> Apart from the naked mole rat, yeah. Tell us about the naked mole rat. Yeah, so so the naked mole rat is is the only species which is as socially minded as we are in that it's a eusocial mammal. It's got a social structure the same as the hymenoptera, the bees and, and the ants and the wasps, wow. where it has a queen mole rat and its sisters, the sisters, help to bring up the queen's babies. So it's a highly integrated social structure, but it's all kin-related. And what's spectacular about humans is we have that highly highly social minds but not confined to kin that's the amazing thing that it's not about um genetic selection and nor is our altruism 
reciprocal. Mm. If you you give money to a homeless person, you're not expecting them to give you money back. Mm. This goes way beyond reciprocity. And it's something quite unique in, in that way in the animal kingdom in terms of its degree. You find altruism elsewhere, but nothing like you see in human society. At this point, I've got to go and pick up my daughter. Really sorry no, about no, this. No. I'll be as quick as I can. I'll dash back, and then we'll um, fit in as much as much as we can. Where are you? Yes. So at this point, George went uh, off on his bicycle and left us behind in his house with cups of tea um, and having rifled through his pants drawer and <laughs> <laughs> we didn't really rifle through his pants drawer he came back we we're very pleased to say he came back he hadn't just gone to the pub to get away from us um, so yeah no. so, and what with it being two in the afternoon that would have been drastic but it was. understandable yeah and just in time because we wanted to ask him about you know all of this stuff what's going wrong how do we make it right then Mm. So we did. The dream we started. So, George, you're back. Very good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Mad cycle dash across town, but um, we did it. Yeah. So, uh, before you went to pick up your little girl, you uh, were talking about uh, some sort of something that felt a bit like a revolution to me, or something that felt like a kind of a, a, a prospectus for engaging people much more with where they live and what they do and the environment around them and all of that stuff. So, how'd you do that then? Mm. What are we going to do about it? So, I, I think there's two crucial elements here when it comes to community. One is building this participatory culture that I was talking about, and the sort of culture which starts to coalesce into what people call thick networks, the sort of thing that we've seen in Rotterdam, where in six years, 1,300 projects, many of them arising from a single initiative, have just transformed the whole face of the city. Um, city with a lot of social problems, deindustrialized, very sort of um, isolated communities, and it's just phew, amazing stuff has happened there. Really exciting, actually, and um, it's a model for, for a lot of other places. But at the same time, we need to ensure that communities become um, have genuine power and genuine resources. And what that means is the commons, the great neglected sector of, 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 of the economy. And to give you one example of, of how this can be done, and this relies on regime change at the top, which we can come on to in, in a bit. Um, if we look at what happened after the Second World War, um, the effort of governments uh, throughout much of the capitalist world was to break the power of patrimonial capital, of these tremendously rich economic elite which had basically knackered countries everywhere through the Great Depression. It tells you what the new National Health Service is and how you can use what it offers. Hospitals and specialist services. So when the US imposed 94% income tax, top level, and the UK imposed 98%, it wasn't just to try to harvest money. It was deliberately to try to break down that overweening economic and political power. But we're now back to levels of inequality worse than they were then. And it's not just income inequality, wealth inequality is even greater. And we need to break that power once more, because basically very little can happen. We're locked in until we do that. And so what I see as being a crucial element of this is land value tax, is, is taxing that tremendously 
um, concentrated source of wealth which is in the hands of a very small number of people and is used to hold the rest of society ransom. Um, so we, um, you know, people paying 20%, 30%, 50% of their income in rent so that other people don't have to work. Mm-hmm. The landlords don't have to mm-hmm. do any work at all. They just sit there and harvest the money that other people are slaving away mm-hmm. to make in often desperate situations, especially in the global capitals, such as London. Um, and the um, and and so we tax that land value. It's because you know the, the great majority of the price of housing is the speculative value of the land that underlies it, and that's what the landlords are harvesting. That's what we should be taxing. And the great thing is they can't move their land to Panama <laughs> or to the Cayman Islands. <laughs> and then um, that does two things. First of all, it breaks their um, grip of economic power over the rest of society. This is the grip of the 0.1% who basically now run politics, run the economy, make sure that everyone dances to their tune. Secondly, it brings down the price of land significantly because it's no longer a lucrative speculative asset. Oh, and thirdly, it provides a great pool of money for the government to use. So what do we do with this money? Well, we use some of it to pay for public services, but the, res- the residue of this should go back to communities, distributed fairly across the country to communities, who would be encouraged to set up a commons trust to handle this money. So if we take the average urban community, um, sort of part of a borough, for instance, you say, right, here's a wadge of money. Now, you can use this pretty well as you wish, but on commons principles, so it's shared equally, uh, the rest of it. But we're going to encourage you perhaps to look in a particular direction because we're going to give you the community right to buy like they have in Scotland and we're going to give you a community right to land assembly so you then sitting there as a community saying well what are our basic needs here oh housing yeah affordable housing I don't mean affordable housing (laughs) affordable housing yeah housing you can actually afford Um, and what do we have um, in in this borough oh look at that great big casino sitting there on this land oh it's come up for sale do we need a casino more than we need affordable housing Uh, maybe not so let's buy this land and um, we'll uh, knock down the casino and we create a site building site but we're not we're not going to develop this ourselves what we're going to do is um go to the um, top people on the social housing list and say half the homes on this site will be for you if you want them. You've got the option um, to put your names down for this. And then you, because you want a mixed development, you go to people who want to be owner-occupiers and private renters and you say, you put down a deposit and the other half can be allocated to you. And you people together are going to design the estate. Not just your own homes within the estate, but the whole estate. Buy this house. I can't afford it. Buy it. Look, I'll have to stick to the bank. Buy it. Look, please, no. Buy it. Look, please don't make me. Buy it. Look, I beg you. Buy it. Look, stop it. Buy it. You can't do it. Buy it. This is really unfair. Buy it. Please. Buy it. I won't do it. Buy it. OK. Great! <laughs> let's go back to my office and sign the paperwork. Ooh, I am. What we see worldwide is that when people design their own estates, they're a hundred times better than when the volume house builders turn up and say, here you are, like it or lump it, which means lump it. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and the other thing you find is that for a couple of years before they move on, and before they move in, those people are going to be working together, forming a community. So when they move in, they move in as a community. You've already created that uh, rich community of people who have been very closely involved with each other's lives because they have to make the estate work together. And then you, as the um, 
Commons Trust, well, you're now the Commons Land Trust because you own land. You're receiving rent, albeit at a lower level than the land was previously commanding, considerably lower from the social rental sector. And you are getting um, still some um, money from the from land value taxation distributed by the government. So what are you going to do with this money? Well, you might want to build some more. You might want to build some public amenities or you might want to issue a local basic income on a shared and equal basis to everyone in that community. You, you can see the opportunities begin to proliferate. Mm. So, George, you're, you're talking about a, a universal, well, some sort of income that, that everybody gets um, in this community. Um, do That strikes me as something which is going to become essential as... Um, autonomy as automation takes so many jobs which we we think it's going to do um, is that part of your thinking where does the kind of the rise of the robots and the the fact that we're inventing something higher up the food chain than ourselves uh, don't, get, don't get scared again <laughs> sorry i'll get freaked out by this but where, <laughs> do, does that come into your thinking is it about resisting that at all well look it has to come into our thinking you know i mean the the robots are with us already there's there's one in number 10 downing street <laughs> i get frustrated people use the term robotic about me yes. during that campaign. That must hurt. <laughs> I don't think I'm in the least robotic. As I say, what I really enjoy is getting out there. To- yeah, and we have to be aware of this reality, but is this a good thing or is this a bad thing? Well, like any technology, it just depends how we use it and how, how it plays. It's not inherently good or inherently bad. It could free us up for a life of leisure um, where wealth, the wealth we require is created without us having to work, or it could... Um, free the uh, economic elite up to exploit us even further and play us against the robots and knock down wages and um, um, free them up to impose a life of near slavery on on other people. Such a touch. (laughs) (laughs) Breathe on, breathe on. It doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear and it absolutely will not stop ever until you are dead. Basically, we have to grasp this. We can't. We, we can't just sit back and allow stuff to to unfold. We have to say what we want, decide what we want from this shift, and 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 use it to ensure that it delivers. Now, look, I, I think a basic income is one tool. It's a very useful tool. It's not going to solve everything. Mm. Um, and we, again, it's it's another technology, if you like, which we have to be in in control of because otherwise, it can be used in a really negative way. You know, the the neoliberals, some of them, love the idea of basic income because they say, right, we can do away with all social services, all public services, um, publicly provided. We're going to have a, one big voucher system. Everybody's got money now because they've got a basic income, so you're going to buy your services. And what that it means is it's profoundly inequitable because, mm. of course, you know, people at the bottom are much less able to buy services than, than people at the top. So, you know, you can have good basic income, you can have bad basic income, and we've got to create the policy framework, which means it works for us. There was a boy a very strange enchanted boy. So, moving on from from robots to something altogether more uh, cheery and, and rooted, you've spoken a lot and written a lot in the past about rewilding, um, which I think many of our listeners will be familiar with the concept. 
Um, I'm really interested to know, how's it going? Are there, are there examples um, in the UK and elsewhere of, of it starting to work? Can you tell us about that? There's some really exciting stuff going on. Sadly, the most exciting stuff I can't talk about at the moment because there's some very delicate negotiations. Are you releasing place? things illegally <laughs> into places they shouldn't be? No, 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 it's not that. And I don't know anyone who's doing any such thing. Um, um, no, no, this is, this is actually an entirely um, different thing. It's a very serious project. Um, bringing in sort of all the relevant people in the region, um, but it's it's completely below the radar. And not put wolves somewhere, yeah. haven't he? He's put wolves um, somewhere. But, but when it when it does happen, it's you know it's going to just be transformative, and people will think, "Wow, that's what we were talking about." Mm-hmm. So so it's, it's really th- I'm not directly involved in it. But I just um, keep in close touch with what's happening. So. Um, but uh, yeah, there's a lot of great stuff. I mean, there's you know there's pre-existing projects, some of which are fantastic, like the Borders Forest Trust mm. um, uh, in the sort of English Scottish border, um, and uh, Trees for Life in the Scottish Highlands, doing really fantastic stuff. There's a lot of reintroduction taking place of um, some of it official, some of it less so. Beavers, pine martins. Mm. Um, uh, so you know, even in this most zoophobic of all nations, which is how I see Britain, things are beginning to shift. But I, I feel we need to go a lot further. And of course, the key to a lot of this is diet, because actually it's livestock farming, which mm. prevents rewilding, prevents recovery and restoration of the living world. It is a most phenomenally wasteful land use. Um, we eat on average, global average, 81 grams of protein per day. Um, livestock farming, grazing, occupies twice as much land as all the cropland and produces one of those grams. God, it's just extraordinary. You know, it's it's like these huge, huge tracts of the Earth's surface denuded by livestock, which are a fully automated system for environmental destruction. You just have to release them, and there's no trees. There's, there's, so there's it's, hardly not, any... it's not the robots I need to be scared of. Yeah. It's the sheep. Yeah, it's... yeah, yeah. They are the robot destroyers. Oh. <laughs> yeah. um, a robot in a sheep's clothing, but, all this but, time. but not as bright. Um, and. Uh, <laughs> And yeah, no, I mean, you know, the, the world has basically been sheet, sheet wrecked and cow trashed. It's some, you know, it, this is the driving force. I mean, you know, we, we talk a lot about climate breakdown as well. We should. But it's actually the third of our massive predicaments. And and the, the first two are our treatment of the land and sea for food production. These these actually have far greater impacts so far than climate breakdown and threaten far more rapid collapse even than climate breakdown does so you know unfao says we at current rates of soil loss we have 60 years of harvest left mm. and that's it that's curtains you know there's no negotiation with that civilizations survive war famine plague loss of soil no coming back and yeah, that's it. And I imagine year 58 and 59 aren't particularly great of those 60 years. It's, no, it's not a happy trajectory. No. So, so um, you know, the, the key here is, is really a, a radical change of diet. And, you know, I've been advocating this for a while. And, um, yeah, and it is, the shift is happening in countries like the UK pretty fast. You know, sort of look at the number of vegans. It's just rising um, almost exponentially at the moment. Too much chow. I will never call you a cow. I respect you and cows. Don't use cow as an insult. If you eat... But we need to we need to shift faster. I mean, uh, on current trajectories, you know, the human population is rising at one point 
2% a year, livestock population 2.4% a year. And that means four times the extra livestock biomass than uh, by 2050 than the extra human biomass. You know, that's the real population crisis. You know, you want to look to population, look at the population of livestock. And, um, and, and that's where we just have to shift. We have to change. And, you know, the, the promise that rewilding holds out is, you know, we could take this land which is being used ridiculously unproductively with this spectacularly awful ratio of destruction to production, producing hardly anything, destroying almost everything. And we could say we can do something really amazing here. Um, a, a, a hopeful, positive environmental story of restoration and re-establishment. So sometimes in your columns, what you write for The Guardian, you're a bit of a misery guts, if you don't mind me saying so, George. Um, and that's all right. At least sometimes. How <laughs> dare you, sir? <laughs> Sorry. What do you take me for? I'm kind of optimist. <laughs> but yet when you read your books and you talk to you, there is, you know, you mentioned it at the start, uh, you, I think you're fundamentally an optimistic guy. So how do you square those things? Where do you sit? Do you sort of oscillate between despair and optimism? And, and how do you keep yourself optimistic on a day-to-day basis? I'm optimistic about what we are and pessimistic about what we do. You know, there's been this sort of revolution in the understanding of human nature over the past 20 years or so. Findings in neuroscience and psychology and anthropology and evolutionary biology all point to the fact that we are overwhelmingly altruistic, empathetic, beneficent and uh, community-minded. Those are our, our, our primary values. Experiment after experiment shows this. Selfishness and greed are in there, but they're much lower down. So what we are is fantastic, but what we do is really shit. Mm. And and what we do is governed by the system in which we live. Not just the economic and political system, but also the cultural setting. Brilliant book, Jeremy Lent, called The Patterning Instinct, which shows how culture shapes our cognitive pathways, and often with, in disastrous ways. And, um, and, and that, in a way, is almost a primary thing. that you know, We're in this toxic culture which pushes us in the wrong direction again and again. And so when I look at that and what it's doing... I say, we're in a bad place. When I look at who we are and what we could do, we're in a pretty good place. I was listening to the news the other day. They had a fat politician who had the nerve to see. George, thank you so much for giving us your time uh, and for uh, fitting us round your, your family life as well. We hugely appreciate it. I'm sorry um, about the, uh, the slight uh, interruption in the middle. Not at all. Uh, people will, I'm sure, want to hear more from you. Uh, what's your Twitter handle? How else can uh, they? Yes, it's uh, at George Monbiot. Um, you can... Uh, I've got my um, Guardian articles. Uh, I also put them on my website, which is monbiot.com. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm out there making a noise most days, one way or another. I also love the idea that there's a single one of our listeners that won't already know how. Yes, it is. George Williams. Thanks, George. Thank you very much. to the heather and the gold They cleared us off once and do it all So, there you go then, there Dave. You go. That is a genuine ambition that I've held for many, many years to go and meet and talk to and listen to uh, George Monbiot. And I'm, oh, what a treat. What do, you really, do you really get you started on all this then? Is the babble George Monbiot's fault? 
Yeah, give or take. Me and my mate Ian were sitting around drinking tea, not doing anything useful, reading that book of his, and um, yeah, it made a lot of sense. And we thought, wow, well, how do we, how do we go and do what George Monbiot does? And the answer was, be George Monbiot. Don't be too lay about music students. But it sowed a seed, and um, uh, yeah, I definitely think you can you can trace a lot of it back to then. Oh, very good. Well, thank you so much to George for your time. Thank you to Arabella for reading out the poetry that you heard in the middle of that. And thank you, as always, to the legendary Dickie Moore for the music that starts and ends and intertwinkles this here podcast. If you want to get in touch with us at any stage, you can send us an email by emailing hello at sustainababble.fish or find us on Twitter at the Babble Wagon or just search Facebook for Sustainababble. Right, you are jolly good old. Uh, so we shall be back next week. In the meantime, stop picking your teeth. I can see what you're doing. Um, and uh, I'll talk to you next week. Yes? <laughs> yes, I will. I wasn't picking my teeth exactly, but... Um, <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, carry on. Ooh, then what were you doing? <laughs> oh, bye. Bye. By John Clare. The frog half fearful jumps across the path, and little mouse that leaves its hole at eve nimbles with timid dread beneath the swath. My rustling steps a while their joys deceive, till past, then the cricket sings more strong, and grasshoppers in merry moods still wear the short night weary of, of with their fretting song. Up from behind the molehill jumps the hare, cheat of his chosen bed, and from the bank.